With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. The state finds that six groundwater basins are out of compliance for sustainability. California water officials have delivered a mixed report card on local plans to curb overpumping of groundwater to protect the state's aquifers. State law requires plans for bringing groundwater supplies into balance within 20 years. The California Department of Water Resources recommended six San Joaquin Valley sustainability plans for approval, but rejected six others as inadequate. Inadequate determination triggers a state intervention process, which authorizes the California State Water Resources Control Board to step in and manage the basins. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into today's show headlines. California Farm Bureau links arms to fight for a firefighting tool. In 2020 alone, wildfires burned more than 4.2 million acres. It directly impacted productive cropland, causing millions of dollars in damage. And with smoke from the fires, it indirectly impacted regions outside of the fire as well as the farm workforce. Now, an environmental group is looking to make fighting fires a bit more challenging. A lawsuit issued last October against the U.S. Forest Service claims that fire retardants used to battle wildfires violates the Clean Waters Act. The suit claims the product is dropped from air tankers into and adjacent to navigable waterways. So, in efforts to protect that key firefighting tool, California Farm Bureau has recently joined arms with other ag, forestry, and wood organizations, as well as many of the counties who have been devastated by recent wildfires. Collectively, the groups filed a legal brief seeking to intervene in defense of the U.S. Forest Service's use of fire-suppressing tools. California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson says, quote, Our farmers and ranchers face severe threats from wildfires that can occur in our national forests and spread to agricultural lands. Additionally, fires threaten the lives of livestock, disrupt grazing operations, and put our rural agricultural communities in peril. We support the Forest Service's continued use of this important firefighting tool. And now here's Brian German with more Ag News. There are still a significant number of questions related to carbon contracts and how growers might be able to take full advantage of those opportunities. Agricultural law specialist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension, Tiffany Dow-Lamschmidt, said that in conversations with industry members, there are still a lot of unknown variables as to how carbon sequestration can be a viable option. Another big issue that I get a lot of questions on right now is carbon contracts. If folks are interested potentially in learning more about the opportunities to sign up with one of these private voluntary contractual agreements, whereby I'm going to undertake certain actions on my farm and get paid for the additional carbon um, sequestration that may result in, again, still a very popular topic when I continue to get a lot of questions on. There are great resources out there from a number of folks you know, looking at that issue as well. A recent study shows that California pistachios have an economic impact on the state of more than $6.4 billion. The 2022 study commissioned by American pistachio growers shows that grower and processor spending on farming operations totaled nearly $3.5 billion. Industry spending also helped to create more than 55,000 jobs on a full-time equivalent. Labor income generated through the pistachio industry totaled nearly $3 billion. 
A 20% increase in bearing acreage between 2020 and 2022 was a significant contributor to the overall economic impact of the industry, creating additional grower and processor spending of nearly $514 million. California pistachios also generated nearly $99 million in sales taxes and more than $81 million in property taxes as a result of industry spending. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the House Agriculture Subcommittee on Forestry held a hearing last week to look at Title VIII of the Farm Bill, the forestry title. California Congressman Doug LaMalfa is a chairman of the subcommittee. In his opening statement, he talked about the wildfires California has seen. So in the past five years alone, we've seen some of the most destructive wildfires on record, especially in California. In my own district, we have seen several of these fires. The 2018 campfire, as our chairman mentioned in Paradise and surrounding areas on the ridge in uh, northeast Butte County. The 2020 North Complex fire, which uh, was several fires in eastern Butte County and stretching into others. The million, the million acre, say this for, to yourself for a minute, the million acre Dixie fire in 2021, which devastated uh, most of Greenville, another town known as Canyon Dam, and, and touched and threatened many others. And these are just a handful of the many fires. You can't name them all. Since 2000, we've averaged more than 70,000 wildfires per year and an average of 7 million acres burned annually. This acreage is more than double the average number during the 1990s. Since 2018, we've had four fire seasons that have exceeded 7 million acres, including 2020, when 10.1 million acres burned. We don't really even have a fire season anymore, as, as such as it's a year-round fire year. And this has effects not just in the West. We saw during the Dixie Fire that the smoke plume was so massive that it lifted and went across the entire country and affected air quality on East Coast cities where there was advisories for people not to go out and engage in athletic activity. He wants to see changes in the Forestry Department. The Forest Service must get more aggressive in its pace and scale of forest land treatment. It must increase the partnerships with whether it's the private sector, local government, local tribes, and other third parties that can cut, harvest, thin more trees that would otherwise only contribute to declining forest health in our overpopulated forests and, of course, the threat of the outbreak of new fire, new wildfires, as uh, told to me by members fighting those fires, especially in 2021 during the Million Acre Dixie Fire, 
Those firefighters on the ground have never seen the conditions like they have with the acute level of dryness. The, the, the dryness factor was such that it was overwhelming what they had to deal with. Over the past 30 years, we've fallen way behind with our forest health and management goals, as well as timber harvest, harvest needed to promote that health. We only harvest about a third of the timber we did at, one, at the peak on Forest Service lands and routinely fall short of our allowable sale quality across the national forest system. Indeed, the number of board feet growing in the forest each year massively outstrips the amount that's being harvested, falling farther and farther behind on inventory. The Forest Service is carrying out its proposed 10-year strategy to confront the wildfire crisis. Through this plan, the Forest Service has identified some 20 million acres of federal land and an, another 30 million acres of adjacent non-federal lands that are at the highest threat of catastrophic wildfire and in need of immediate treatment. This would be carried out over a 10-year period. Billions of dollars have been appropriated by Congress to the Forest Service over the past year and a half to help support this work. Yet funding alone will not fix the massive problems we have with wildfire in our forests. As the agency is moving forward with this work, this committee needs to know what tools, what authorities, or other resources the agency needs, and they must be vocal about it. And all of our other partners must, have, must help to ensure that this work actually gets done as well. The Farm Bill should be used to help address some of these challenges in the West and across the national forest system. The forestry title of the Farm Bill contains a variety of provisions, and we must expand the management authorities in this law. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson, Fragnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, according to new data released by USDA and compiled by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, U.S. pork exports maintained momentum in January after a strong finish last year. But U.S. beef exports, after a record-breaking 2022, slowed late in the year, and that trend continued in January. Shipments of U.S. beef were well below the large totals from a year ago. Starting with pork, January export totals, 236,776 metric tons. That's up 13% year over year. Export value was up 16% to just over $643 million. Exports to Mexico, which finished last year on a remarkable run on the way to an annual record, set another volume record in January. Exports also trended significantly higher year over year to China, Hong Kong, Japan, Canada, the Dominican Republic, Colombia, Honduras, and the Asian region. Now, beef exports declined to several major destinations in January, while shipments increased sharply to Mexico, the Dominican Republic, the Philippines, and to Africa. Now, January volume fell 15% year-over-year to 100,942 metric tons at a value at just over $702 million. That's down 32%. Beef inventories actually swelled in some key markets near the end of last year. That contributed to a challenging environment for U.S. exports. January exports of U.S. lamb muscle cuts at 222 metric ton was up 161% from the low year-ago volume in January, while export value essentially doubled to $1.1 million, up 99%. Growth was led by strong increases to Mexico and the Caribbean. If you'd like to see a detailed summary of the January export results, you can go to the USMEF website, usmef.org.
And late last week, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.J. Resolution 27, a Waters of the U.S. or Waters Resolution of Disapproval. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association hailed passage of that joint resolution, and their counsel, and their chief counsel, Mary Thomas Hart, says this rule is the third regulatory attempt to define Waters in the last three years. NCBA is incredibly pleased with House passage of the resolution to overturn the Biden administration's WOTUS definition. This rule is the third regulatory attempt to define WOTUS in the last 10 years and only continues to create confusion for landowners across the country. The Congressional Review Act, uh, commonly called the CRA, is a tool that Congress can use to show disapproval of and potentially overturn burdensome regulations that are passed by an administration. Obviously, it works just like any other law. It has to be passed by both chambers of Congress and signed into law by the president. Um, But this is an important first step. We so appreciate the House of Representatives' effort. More about this can be found on the National Cattlemen's Beef Association website, ncba.org. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. American farmers are the original conservationists, stewarding natural resources and investing in innovation to feed a growing world. National Ag Day is an annual opportunity to recognize and celebrate the abundance provided by American growers. At Syngenta, we salute their contributions. Our ongoing innovation helps growers be more productive, profitable, and sustainable, and we're proud to recognize and celebrate them on this National Ag Day 2023. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. More freedom for farmers to repair their own equipment. That's coming up on this land of ours. The American Farm Bureau Federation and CNH Industrial Brands Case IH and New Holland signed a Memorandum of Understanding allowing farmers and ranchers to repair their equipment. The MOU follows a similar agreement Farm Bureau signed with John Deere earlier this year. Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval says farmers and ranchers are more dependent on technology than ever before, so it's critical they have access to the tools to keep things running on the farm so the food supply chain keeps running too. The MOU sets a framework for farmers and independent repair facilities in all 50 states and Puerto Rico to access CNH Industrial Brands manuals, tools, product guides, and information to self-diagnose and self-repair machines. The MOU respects intellectual property rights and recognizes the need for safety controls and that emission systems don't get altered. CNH and AFBF will meet semi-annually to review the agreement to address any concerns. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. For some farm families, passing down the farm from generation to generation is a primary goal. If it is for you, what are some things you can do to help those efforts along? What can you do to help transition your farm or ranch to the next generation? Let me suggest just a few. Start by updating your balance sheet. Understanding the value of your assets will help minimize income tax and potential estate tax in the future. 
Also, how are you going to bring in the next generation? Will it be by gift or by sale? Will off-farm siblings have to be bought out? And consider giving the next generation a current management task to do. Having them gain some experience now can be very helpful in the future. Remember to keep your estate planning documents updated and review your retirement funding. Many farmers simply plow money back into the business, but that can make a transition more difficult. Also think through the tax consequences of exiting the business. Be wary of deferred income, prepaid expenses, and fully depreciated equipment. If you rent land, make sure your family members know the landowners. Finally, make sure your heirs will be good business partners. Because of the potential for conflict, it's a good idea to have a buy-sell agreement so ownership can be rearranged and structured properly into subsequent generations. There's a lot to think about when planning for a successful transition of the farm or ranch business. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. In response, rural broadband advocates, farm groups, and telecom experts are speaking up on overcoming key barriers to successfully closing the digital divide. Christian Stout is the Director of Innovation Policy for the International Center for Law and Economics. He talks about some of the barriers to the efficient use of broadband expansion funds. One of the threats that to the, the efficacy of this program could be different state authorities not necessarily focusing on the people who have traditionally been very difficult to connect to the internet, but looking at lower-hanging fruit that is easier to connect. People who might have slower than extremely fast, but are faster than what we consider non-existent broadband service. There are a number of hurdles that have just traditionally existed everywhere in the United States of broadband deployment. These include things like municipal permitting, getting rights of way, and then one of the largest drivers of cost is access to utility poles across the United States. There are some more complicated problems that go into access to these poles around whether they're privately owned, whether they're owned by municipalities and co-ops, which can easily explode costs for a particular deployment and make it so that the money that the federal government is directing to reach these remote areas is not actually being fully used to reach these people, but is instead being wasted. There are several concrete steps government agencies can take to ensure efficient use of the funds and get that digital divide closed. The first thing to say about this is that, by and large, private providers have done a really great job of reaching the United States. We're one of the most connected countries in the world. Congress has direct authority over some entities that own these poles that can explode costs, something like the Tennessee Valley Authority, for instance, entities like it that are under direct congressional control are obligated to reply to these requests in a timely manner and do so in a way that doesn't try to unfairly shift costs onto private providers. Accessing utility poles in remote areas can get very expensive. The problem is a little more complicated when you're outside of direct congressional control. The FCC has direct jurisdiction over investor-owned utilities that have poles. The FCC can make a ruling that imposes a requirement that cost-sharing is equitable between private providers and poll owners, that these disputes are settled in a timely manner, and that there's something called the accelerated docket that these disputes can get onto to make sure they're resolved in a timely manner. What it doesn't have the power to do this to is over states that have opted out of the FCC oversight and over municipal and co-op utilities. Congress should look at extending FCC authority over those entities. That's a big one. There is a lot of confusion about the requirements that go along with the funds. NTIA, the National Telecommunications Information Administration, they're another federal agency that's responsible for dispersing the grants to the states that are coming out through the money that the federal government allocated. When Congress passed the law that created this money, they actually did not put a huge number of strings on the money. They want this money to go right to the states to be used to connect people. 
when the NTIA got access to this program, they started to put a number of strings on it, which are technically not in the law itself. NTIA should revise the application requirements that it's putting out there because I think it's misleading to the states. It makes it look to the states like there's a number of things they have to spend money on. At the same time, if NTIA doesn't do that, I think there's a role for state regulators to be aware that these requirements from NTIA are just recommendations and are not actually required by the program. Again, Christian Stout of the International Center for Law and Economics. Chad Smith reporting. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. Well, a week from today marks the first day of spring. We expect the grain trade to be more reactionary to spring weather. I'm Mark Oppold. This is the Bottom Line Report for Monday, March 13th, brought to you by AgriLiquid. Major economic reports now behind us. It will dictate, though, action from the Federal Reserve at their monthly meeting next week. So we would see a bounce on Wall Street and at the CME Group in Chicago, for that matter. The 30 stock index, by the way, though, is below the 200-day moving average. First time that's happened since November the 9th. Wall Street traders are pricing in a now a 63% chance the Fed will raise interest rates by 50 basis points. We see the Dow finding support here at 32,000, though even though trading below that, grain futures look higher to start the week in our view. ProGerminator from AgriLiquid promotes exceptional growth throughout the entire growing season. At AgriLiquid, they say, apply less, but expect more. Learn more at agriliquid.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. We see livestock futures staying range-bound here early week. Cattle, though, having a better chance of breaking out to the upside than lean hogs. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day and a profitable week ahead. Let's take the radio time machine and travel back almost exactly two years ago, March 1st, 2021 with Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack telling reporters that the Agriculture Department in the past has discriminated against the black farmers and others. We've not only had discrimination in the past, but we've had the cumulative effect of that discrimination, which needs to be addressed, discrimination that has taken place over the course of years at the Department of Agriculture. And so Vilsack announced one of the ways to address that problem. 
We'll have an equity commission, which will begin the process of investigating all of the programs at USDA to make sure that we identify and root out any systemic racism that may exist in those programs. That work has reached a major milestone, and we'll hear about it on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. From the time that the Agriculture Secretary announced that there would be an equity commission, it took about a year to find the commissioners to organize things, and in late February 2022, the USDA's Equity Commission began its work, and in its first meeting was given instructions from Secretary Vilsack. What I hope we get from this commission is a set of recommendations for how the USDA can be a place of equity. And one year later... February of this year. That's exactly what the commission delivered to Vilsack. A very serious report with specific recommendations. 37 pages, 32 specific recommendations. This is not just a report in a nice binder. USDA Senior Advisor for Racial Justice and Equity, Dr. Dwayne Goldman, called it a report that will generate action. In fact, Secretary Vilsack says it already has. We've actually made some progress. We've begun to figure out there are things we could do and should do that we didn't necessarily have to wait for the ink to dry on the report. But Commission co-chair and outgoing Deputy Agriculture Secretary Jewel Brano said there is a lot more to do and the clock is ticking. Time is our biggest challenge. We don't have a lot of time because because we don't know who's going to come in the next administration. So there's some things we need to get across the finish line very quickly. These recommendations we need to move forward with implementation. We need to move forward in preparation for farm bill discussions for some of them. Some of them are going to require budget negotiations. And we got to start the institutionalization work. We have the structure for that, but it's, it's a mindset change. And there are more than 100,000 employees at USDA. So those are challenges, but they're not challenges we can't overcome. Secretary Vilsack and Commission member and University of Arkansas economist Dr. Ronald Rainey said perhaps the biggest challenge for the Department of Agriculture is to regain some trust that has been lost through past practices and policies of discrimination. Not everybody trusts the USDA. Not everybody feels comfortable going in and talking to a USDA office. Because maybe their ancestors, maybe their past generations weren't treated fairly. As an agricultural economist, it's heartbreaking when I talk to farmers and I say, well, you should go to FSA or NRCS or any USDA agency. And they say, uh, no, I'm not going there. I, I don't trust them. Don't trust that office. Don't trust that program. Or I've never heard of that program and no one's ever told me about that program. So to, to be at a point that we're a trusted organization where those relationships are blossoming, I think would be a fantastic outgrowth of this effort. But, of course, according to Commission Co-Chair Jewel Brano. There are folks who believe USDA will never change. They believe that. Um, You see articles come out and we're doing all this work, and then there's still a little bit of question at the end of the article. Are they really going to change? We are really changing. But Secretary Bilsack says this is not just about changing the culture and reputation of a single government department. It's not just about improving this department for particular groups of people. It's about creating a model, a model department that sends a very strong message about the importance of inclusion, the importance of equity, the importance of diversity, the understanding that this is how you get one step closer to what our constitution requires of us, each generation of Americans, to work for that more perfect union. And on that score, Bill Sachs says, we're already getting started. 
and we're not going to stop. Trying to make USDA, as Secretary Vilsack says, a model of equity and diversity giving equal access to USDA information and programs to everyone regardless of their backgrounds. The Equity Commission's report to Vilsack is an interim one. The full version will be delivered by the end of the year. You've been listening to Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Only about 3% of Earth's water is fresh, and agriculture uses a lot of fresh water, more than 70% of it because it takes roughly a liter of water to produce just a single calorie of food. On this 30th anniversary of World Water Day, March 22nd, it's good to know that climate-smart agricultural techniques are allowing many farmers to use water more efficiently than ever before. This message is brought to you by Syngenta. Our people have a thirst for innovation that saves water. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Today, I'm rounding out my conversation with Stanislaus County Farm Bureau's Anna Genesee and Virtual Nursery CFO Jim Austin talking all about the labor shortages and the H-2A visa program. What happens when there aren't enough workers available, be it here? Um, as you mentioned, it's, it's hard. Uh, that next generation, they don't quite have that want and desire to do what folks have been doing within the ag industry or within the H-2A programs. Maybe there aren't, you know, workers who are wanting to come over. Um, Do we just stop producing and start importing all of our food or more food? Um, Do we keep growing but start using autonomous tractors and harvesters and packers or, you know, whatever else that needs to happen and robots, you know, what do we what do we do looking forward when there isn't enough workers available? Yeah, I Danielle, that's a great question. I think we're already seeing um, a little a little bit of that, right? We are seeing folks leave the state um, for a variety of reasons, you know, labor costs, overregulation, um, just the the sediment around production agriculture. I mean, we're um, we're literally hearing it from the governor's office, right? Um, you know, DPR just came out with their sustainable roadmap where they outline goals of fully organic California by 2050. I mean, there's there's just this huge disconnect between what we're doing as an industry that is, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, we are progressive, we are forward thinking, we are doing more with less on a daily basis. And I think one of the things that we have not done well is champion amongst consumers and voters what it is that we're doing. Um, I would argue that one of the biggest hangups of our industry is we we tend to preach to the choir, right? We we sit down at the local coffee shop and we talk about our woes and and everybody there agrees with us because they're all doing the same thing. Um, but we're not we're not doing a great job of educating the consumer. And at this point, I wouldn't even say education um, necessarily because what we do is very technical and scientific based. I would just love it if if we could somehow 
promote an appreciation for what is going on um, in our industry. Um, and it's, and I'm, I'm even seeing it amongst, you know, within Farm Bureau, like we're doing more now to speak to consumers. It can't be always internal facing communication. We need to get out there and talk to folks on a regular basis who are buying our products um, so that they have a better uh, just appreciation of the, the thought and the technology and the advancement that is going into producing the food that they so enjoy on their table. And I feel like maybe the, pan- the pandemic COVID gave us a little glimpse as, as what we look like as a society when we can't walk into a grocery store and grab the toilet paper that we're used to seeing there. You know, think what that area is going to look like when they can't walk into the grocery store and get access to, you know, meat and cheese and produce and, and all the things that we kind of take for granted. Um, but, but yeah, I, I definitely see our industry going more towards mechanization. Um, you know, we're seeing it in the dairy industry as, as you know, robot milking um, is coming, becoming more and more regular. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of tough. I, I, I was going to say my answer to your question would be all of the above. I think from the business standpoint, you're going to see um, continued push into automation wherever possible. Some things um, I just just do not see uh, how it would be automated, at least with the technology that we have available, but that's not everything. All the things that can be automated probably will be and, and maybe even should be. And it's not that we don't want to have employees. It's just the reality that at some point, and I and I'm not, I don't know where that is, but I, I'm afraid that we're going to find it. And and that is at some point, it stops making sense when the cost of trying to farm an almond orchard or a peach orchard or an orange orchard um, exceeds what you're going to get for it in the market. And once we get to that point, then it's people aren't going to do it. And I worry that if we can't get control of our costs and um, our, our government doesn't seem to be able to connect the dots between what they're doing and the increases that it's causing in costs for everybody, not just in California, but all across the country. We're not headed on a good road. Daniel, may I, may I say just one, one last thing? Um, a couple years back, our Ag Commissioner at the time, Milton O'Hare, um, they're required to do a annual crop report um, that is then reported to the CDFA, California Department of Food and Ag. And a few years back, he took it one step farther. He actually hired um, kind of economic investigators. Um, that's Anna's term. <laughs> I don't know what they actually are called. But um, they did a deep dive into the multiplier effect that production agriculture has on Stanislaus County. And what they found is it, just in our county, one in eight jobs depend on production the production ag industry in this county, one in eight. So when we're talking about, you know, an almond grower deciding that, you know what, this isn't penciling out for me anymore, and he or she pivots to another industry, it's not just their household that's impacted, right? It's it's their processor, it's their employees, it's their truck drivers, um, it's, you know, Blue Diamond, um, you know, whoever they're working with, like there is a multiplier effect that I I don't think folks think about 
Um, and Stanislaus County, one in eight. I mean, that's huge, huge. Their, that their job depends on production agriculture staying a vibrant industry. Um, and I, I would argue that if you went up and down the Central Valley and our coastal counties, um, you know, we would see that same multiplier effect. And it's really imperative to our economy, California's economy, that we stay a healthy industry. Hmm, absolutely. Um, and last question here as we end, a, a call to action or some action steps that folks can take, be it maybe they're interested in, you know, gathering workers for the H2A visa program. What are those steps that they can take? But maybe they're seeing, um, you know, active shortages in labor and those production costs are getting high. Is there a lawmaker that they can reach out to to fight for reform? Um, what are maybe some action items that folks who are listening can take in, into action? Yeah, no, great, great way to wrap it up today. I, as always, uh, you know, my call to action for your listeners is to join their county farm bureau and to have an active role. Um, I can give you just anecdotally really short this story. I had a board member um, come to us, come to Farm Bureau and say, gosh, I just went to a continuing education class and they were talking about new regulations that impact the use of Tolone, which is a soil fumigant that we use um, here in California. And so one member came to us, just one out of the 1,600 agricultural members that we have here in Stanislaus County came to us and said, gosh, Farm Bureau, I'd really like you guys to take a look at this. And we did. We worked with our state Farm Bureau. We worked with our local ag commissioner. We worked with TriCal, who's an applicator of that fumigant. And we were able to put together a um, letter that that was submitted to DPR, Department of Pesticide Regulation, and make sure that our voice, our one member's voice, was heard in regards to this proposed um, regulation. And and I would say that is the beauty of the structure of Farm Bureau. We are not commodity specific. I don't care if you're milking cows or growing almonds. Um, we're here to represent you. Um, and you farm because you love to farm, not because you love to fight the fight in Sacramento and D.C. So use us, you know, use us as, as that tool to make, to be sure that your voice is heard. Um, and I know it's cliche, but every every voice matters. Um, you know, we just sent John, John Doherty to, to Washington, and that came down to, you know, just a handful of votes that tip that scale. So um, your voice does matter. I don't want folks to get discouraged. We got to keep fighting the good fight. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. A cover crops and rice field demonstration is coming up towards the end of the month. The event is scheduled for Monday, March 27th, beginning at 10 a.m. on the corner of Highway 45 and White Road in Calusa. 
The event will feature information on CDFA's Healthy Soils program, which will be accompanied by a field demonstration. There will be several presentations from UC personnel on Delta cover crops, cover crops and rice variety trial, as well as overall benefits of cover crops. The project is being supported by the California Rice Research Board and CDFA with collaboration from UC Davis and UC A&R. Kim Gallagher will also be providing a grower perspective and the day will end with a discussion, viewing and evaluation of field plots. CCA and CDFA Nitrogen Management Continuing Education credits have been applied for. More information on the demonstration day is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Agriculture is the second largest target for cyber attacks. If cybercrime was its own country, it would have the third largest economy after the U.S. and China. That's how lucrative it is. And that's why agriculture is the second largest target, because farming and food is critical infrastructure. Special Agent Byron Franz with the Milwaukee Division of the FBI says there are several techniques for agribusinesses to use to protect themselves against cyber attacks, such as phishing scams, ransomware, or other hacks. The first and foremost I'd say is multi-factor or dual-factor authentication. That means something more than a password. Multi-factor is something you know, something you are, or something you have. Something you know is a password. It doesn't matter how many passwords you got, it's still only one factor. Something you, you are is like biometrics, like a thumb swipe on your, on your phone. And something you have is like a changing token, like providers like RSA and others provide. And I'm not advocating a product or service, but that's where one half is a password and the other is a changing number or something that changes every minute. It's really hard for a a hacker to get through multi-factor authentication. And he says when it comes to passwords, the FBI reminds us to make sure those passwords are strong. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halbertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.